Hello, everyone, and welcome to Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this week's podcast episode. Uh, this week, we are doing a Bible episode. What that means is I'm going to read, I read a chunk of scripture over, you know, the last couple weeks. I have put it together into an outline of a summary and kind of what it's taught me. And I'll go over that today. So if you've been listening to me for a while, you may remember that in 2021, I did the Bible in a year uh, plan, reading plan. And I went from April and the goal was to end in January. Well, also in January, I realized I really needed to get going on my state history series that I wanted to do if I was going to finish that by the end of 2022. So there was this, this like weird middle ground period where I was like, hmm, you know, I need to start the States one, but I haven't quite finished the Bible in a year one. So I'll just do for a short amount of time, maybe like three weeks, I will do three podcast episodes a week. I didn't realize how hard that actually was going to be because the Bible ones do require a lot of prep with like Bible commentaries and things like that. And then the States one requires a lot of prep. And then I wanted to do another whole, you know, full prep podcast. So it's been very hard to get three podcasts up a week if they all require some prep work. So I'm just taking the next three weeks to actually finally finish the Bible in a year. Today we are going from Philemon, which I had to look up how to pronounce that, but it is Philemon. <laughs> so we're going from Philemon to the end of James. And then next week we'll finish up the entire uh, New Testament, except for Revelation. And then the week after that we'll do Revelation. So three more episodes left, including today. Um, all that being said with, you know, I just said how hard doing three episodes a week is. I do want to start doing a like current events weekly chat sort of thing, uh, with some segments. I've been listening to these great podcasts that are just a little bit more chatty and they talk about their highs and lows of the week, any songs that they're liking, any books that they're liking, any crazy things that have happened that week. And then I kind of want to do a current events section. So that one I feel like doesn't require as much prep. So that one might be, um, I might be able to actually do three a week. So we will see what happens with that. But for right now, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We are doing Philemon through James. Enjoy. Okay, so for Philemon, Philemon only has one chapter in it. And let me read a little bit of the intro because some of them, the intro is kind of self-explanatory, like the book explains a lot of it, of it but I thought for only a one chapter uh, book, it might be useful to have an intro. So it says, one of the people Paul chose to deliver the letters we know as Colossians and Ephesians was a man named On Onesimus. Onesimus was originally from Colossae and would have been known to the people there, but Paul was compelled to write a separate letter for him. This was because Onesimus had been the slave of a wealthy Colossian named Philemon, in whose home the church met. Onesimus had run away, probably robbing Philemon in the process. In Rome, he had become a follower of Jesus. He'd been helping Paul in prison, but now Paul needed him to return to Colossae. 
Paul's hope was that Philemon would not only forgive Onesimus, but welcome him as a brother and no longer a slave. Paul's brief letter to Philemon stresses the change in Onesimus' life. His name meant useful in Greek, and Paul tells Philemon that while he had been formerly useless, a servant Philemon couldn't count on, now he could be useful to both of them. Paul doesn't put Philemon under any obligation. His appeal is on the basis of love, and he promises to honor the demands of justice by making restitution himself if necessary. Most likely, Paul's appeal was successful, or this letter would not have been preserved. In the life of Onesimus, we have a clear example of the kind of transformation that occurred in thousands of lives as the gospel message spread throughout the Roman Empire. So, yes, former slave turned follower of Christ, and so Paul writes to his former master. Okay, so in Philemon, uh, he, first he gives Thanksgiving and prayer as is pretty standard in all the Paul paulician or paul i don't know in all of paul's letters and then he goes on and he again he appeals on the basis of love he's not trying to op, like hold philemon to any obligation but he says that onesimus became like a son to paul while he was imprisoned and he is now sending him back to philemon he says to welcome him as you would welcome me um if he has done any wrong or owes anything, charge it to Paul. So Paul's willing, again, to take on um, any of the damages, basically, personally. He also tells Philemon to prepare a guest room for Paul because he hopes to be restored in... Well, it says that he hopes to be restored in Philemon. So he hopes to basically go and travel and see Philemon um, in the upcoming future, in the near future. So very brief book but definitely a glimpse into like the intro said the transformation of many lives in the roman empire once they heard the gospel okay then we go into hebrews and hebrews is a good i mean hebrews is like where they talk about the um wall or the hall of fame basically of saints or like the heroes of the faith is kind of what I think of Hebrews as, but it has so much practical, like good advice to live by that I just, I love the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to read the intro to that one as well, just so we get a little bit of a background. It says, neither the author nor the audience of this book is specifically named, but the book itself reveals its nature and purpose. The recipients are Jesus believing Jews who are in danger of falling away from the faith. They are likely in Italy, since the author passes on greetings to them from those who are from Italy, probably their friends who are traveling elsewhere. The goal of the whole book is to show the superiority of the final realities God has revealed in the new covenant to the temporary ones of the first covenant. Its readers are encouraged to respond to the threat of persecution by recommitting to the new reality brought by Jesus. The book alternates between teachings reviews of Israel's history or the temple worship arrangements, and challenges based on those teachings. There are four teaching challenge pairs. Number one is Jesus and the salvation he brings are greater than the angels and the salvation they announced, which is the laws of Moses. Two was Jesus is our apostle, someone sent by God on a specific mission, and he brings us into a greater rest and promised land than Moses and Joshua brought Israel into. Number three is that Jesus is a more effective high priest than the priest appointed by the law of Moses. And four, as God's faithful people have done throughout the ages, we must continue living in the light of God's unseen heavenly realities and stepping out in faith. 
through the Messiah, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So that is like the overview and the intro to Hebrews. So let's break it down by each chapter. So Hebrews 1 is the title of this section is called God's final word, his son. So the book talks about how in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. And in these last days, he, instead of speaking through the prophets, has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. So the son is the exact representation of his being and he sustains all things he basically goes over the gospel message. He says, after purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand in heaven. And then he talks a bit again, well, he talks like the intro mentioned about how the sun is superior to the angel angels. So he quotes a lot of other Bible verses to, you know, drive that point home. But that's his main point there is that Jesus is superior to angels. In Hebrews 2, he gives a warning to pay attention so there's no drifting away from the faith. Uh, you know, there in this particular church that he's writing to, there is a high risk of them kind of drifting away from the faith. It, and he says that salva salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, is was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And the next section in Hebrews 2 is called Jesus Made Fully Human. So, um... This whole section is talking about how Jesus came down to us. And at present, we do not see everything that's subject to him. We can and do, and, you know, they did see Jesus um, and says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. They say Jesus came down and shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. That is a true that sentence really impacted me the you know they free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death there are so many people that are so afraid of dying like in the world and in the kind of secular world dying is scary because it's truly like the end they believe it's the end and that is a big part I mean, that's not the whole part of the gospel. Like, it's definitely not the whole part of the gospel that, okay, you're going to heaven. But the freedom that comes with not being afraid of death is very significant. Because I do feel like a lot of people are slaves to the fear of death. Um, he says that Jesus had to be like them, fully human in every way, to make an atonement for the sins of the people. He was tempted so he can help us or help those who are being tempted. So, you know, the Bible talks a lot about this, about how Jesus was fully human. And so if we are feeling tempted, we can know and, and have comfort in the fact that Jesus was tempted in the same ways. He's faced every temptation that we have faced and he held strong and he was sinless and he died on the cross for our sins so we can handle this temptation uh hebrews 3 talks about how jesus was greater than moses how everyone should fix their thoughts on jesus who they acknowledge as the apostle and high priest he was faithful just as moses was this book explains but jesus had greater honor than moses because he the author compares this to a metaphor of 
you know, the builder of a house is greater than the house itself. So Moses is considered the house itself. Jesus is like the builder of the house. So even though they're both faithful, Jesus has greater honor and he is kind of superior to Moses. God is the builder of everything is the final takeaway there. There's a warning in Hebrews 3 to not harden their hearts like their ancestors did. And he said to see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away and to encourage each other in the faith daily, which this is also a big theme throughout the Bible that I've been reading. And honestly, like, you know, we'll, we'll get to it later, but I just read a, a section that talks about um, encouraging each other and like staying in the word basically um, and encouraging each other in wholesome thoughts. And I have, I'll talk about this then, but I've really noticed a difference when I'm not in the word, like my thoughts are naturally not as wholesome or they're not naturally going to Jesus. But when I was doing the Bible in a year and I was reading the like 30 chapters a week, everything that was in my life would connect back to something I read, something else I read in the Bible. So, um, it's very important to not only just be in the word with yourself, but to encourage one another in the faith. And they talk about that multiple times in here. So I need to get better about doing that. Um, Hebrews 4 talks about a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Um, it says that there is a promise of entering into his rest and that that promise still stands. And he warns to be careful that none of you have been found to fall in short of it. Uh, in chapter six, it says, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest and since those who, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so that is a very long passage to just say we need to be entering in Sabbath rest. My husband and I realized we are not very good at that. Basically, we, you know, and what spurred this on too, it was kind of interesting. I always just thought that like Christians, I mean, growing up, it wasn't ever like that big of an emphasis to have a Sabbath day. Um... And so I just, I never really had that as a focus. And then reading through the Bible in a year, I realized how many times it's mentioned to keep a Sabbath rest. And so, you know, it kind of started getting planted more and more about like, hey, I need to actually reserve a day that is just fully restful and really focused on the Lord. Um, but what really actually kind of spurred it on recently was I'm reading the Little House books again and in the first book, like Little House in the Big Woods, they're talking about how uh, on Sundays, Laura and Mary couldn't play as much, they couldn't work, they couldn't do all this stuff because it was the Sabbath day. And Laura was super young, she wants to play, and she's like, I hate Sundays. 
And then Pa explains that his parents, when they were little, um, had to be even more strict. Like they couldn't go on a sled. Like they wanted to sled one day. They couldn't go on a sled because it was Sunday. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't do anything but basically read the Bible on Sundays because they valued the Sabbath so much. So it is a pretty modern thing to really not care about the Sabbath as modern Christians, I feel like. And I really want to bring that back. So we're trying to reorganize, you know, our schedule and make sure to plan things where we can really have a rest day on Sunday and get everything done and just keep Sunday free. Even things like cooking, like they wouldn't cook on Sundays. They would make all their stuff on Saturdays and then just eat it cold on Sundays in the um, olden days. And I actually, I don't have a thing against warming up food. Like I would just warm it up because I don't necessarily consider that work. I bet in the olden, like in the prairie days, heating something up was actually a lot of work because you had to like make a fire or heat the stove or whatever. So that's probably why they considered it work. But, you know, I always think of that as kind of a Jewish thing where they're really, they're not allowed to do any work past sundown on Friday into sundown on Saturday. But that's how it used to be for Christians too in, you know, when everyone came over, like they were very strict about Sabbath. And I just feel like we've gotten so lackadaisical. But when I read these New Testament verses that say you need to have a Sabbath and rest from your work for one day, you know, we need to do that. So I think we're going to start implementing that and really trying to keep Sundays clear. Uh, okay, so Jesus was the great high priest. It says, we have a great high priest who has ascended. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He empathizes with our weakness. He has been tempted in every way and did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Okay, Hebrews 5, it says that every high priest is selected among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's when called by God just as Aaron was. So they're comparing the regular role of a high priest and then talking about how Jesus was the high priest. He's now the eternal or the source of eternal salvation. Um, so that is the metaphor there that he is our high priest. There's a warning against falling away. He says that infants live on good solid food, um, or infants live on milk and then solid food is for the mature. So we should be moving to, you know, consuming that solid food, like the good teaching of mature Christians. And that's exactly what it continues on with, um, in Hebrews 6, it says to move past the elementary teachings about Christ and move forward in maturity. It said, it is possible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly, or it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land 
that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of god wow that was like that was a hard sentence to get through land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of god but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed it in the end it will be burned so that um is definitely a little scary to like that whole verse i don't know some of these verses like are so comforting where it's like you will never be pulled away from the love of christ you will never um you know nothing can separate you from the love of god but then saying okay um you know, if you fall away, if you've tasted the goodness and then fall away, it's impossible to be brought back. Now, I'm assuming that this is like similar to the thing about um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Like you have to, the you know, the unforgivable sin. And that's like, you would never taste the full glory. Like it's basically impossible, but I don't know. I'll have to go back and re-visit um, the commentary on that un forgivable sin that did stress me out for a very long time until I read a couple commentaries but since that was a little bit frightening to me I went and looked up bible commentary on Hebrews 6 4 which is where it says and who have fallen away to, it's impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance because I was like I feel like a lot of people have backslidden and come back to repentance and does that mean they're just not saved um, or does it mean they originally didn't taste the full goodness of God. So this is what BibleRef.com says about that passage. It says Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is among the most is among the most often misunderstood passages in the entire New Testament. Without a clear grasp of context, these verses seem to directly counter the doctrine of eternal security. References in verses 5 and 6 to falling away and a lack of restoration are easily misconstrued to imply a lack of salvation. And yet the Bible is not meant to be read like a stack of fortune cookies or horoscopes. Each word, every verse, and every phrase needs to be considered as part of a whole. Looking at these words from that perspective greatly changes how they are interpreted. First, we need to maintain the entire context of the Bible. So this basically says that, you know, other passages in the Bible say that our salvation is eternally secure. They quote John 10, 28-30 and Romans 3.20 and 11.6. It says it cannot be lost by works. So once a person is legitimately saved, they are saved forever. This entire book of Hebrews is addressed to Christians and the wording... Okay, the entire book of Hebrews is addressed to Christians and the wording of this verse supports that. Those who have, quote, tasted the heavenly gift and who share in the Holy Spirit cannot be any other than true believers. So it says, rather than the loss of salvation, verses four through six describe the possible consequences of immature, stunted faith. Such a condition leaves us vulnerable to the same doubt-driven disobedience when Israel experienced, experienced in the wilderness. This was discussed in Hebrews chapters three and four. Christians who lose their trust in God and doubt fundamental doctrines are implicitly siding with a view that Christ should have been crucified and that what he said was not true in Hebrews 6, 6. That's when he says, um, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
It says, once a person reaches that state, there's nothing to be done by any man in order to bring him back to a living, active faith. This is similar to the dire state described in places such as Proverbs 29, 1 and 1 John 5, 16 through 17. So basically it means it's kind of taken out of context. It doesn't actually mean that you're going to lose your salvation, but it does mean that if you are a Christian and then, um, you know, start living in disobedience and then, you know, start basically tur fully turn your back on Jesus and say like, no, he should have been crucified. That is kind of what that is meaning. Uh, okay. Then the author talks about the certainty of God's promise. He talks about how Abraham was patient and he got what he was promised. God confirmed the promises with an oath. And by this, that we can be greatly encouraged. It says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure and Jesus is now the high priest forever. Okay, so Hebrews 7 then talks about Melchizedek, the priest. So he was the high priest in kind of the olden, you know, Abraham days. So his name means king of righteousness and peace because um, I believe it was Sal Salem meant where he was the area over means peace. So he's known as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And it said that he was made like the son of God with no beginning of days or end, but he's greater than Abraham because Abraham actually paid tithes to him, but he could never be perfect with the Mosaic law because like he was saying, like if you break one commandment or one part of the law, you break basically the entire thing. So Jesus had to be that perfect sacrifice um, in order to have the new covenant and fulfill the new covenant. And he clarifies that Jesus did not come according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but you know, he was divine, I guess. Um, but yeah, he did not come according to the law of a fleshly commandment. Hebrews 8 talks about the high priest of a new covenant. And basically, I just summed this one up by saying Jesus has a better covenant and better promises than the old covenant and promises. And the old covenant has been made pretty much obsolete. It's been replaced by this new covenant of Jesus. Hebrews 9 talks about Christ coming with a greater and more perfect tabernacle. His sacrifice was not his own. I mean, <laughs> oops. His sacrifice was his own, not of goat's blood like the old sacrifices were. The old sacrifices, if you remember, they would put their sin, you know, into, well, they had the Day of Atonement once a year um, where they would atone for their sins and sacrifice a goat. But um, Jesus only had to make his sacrifice one time, but he had to die for the testament to take effect. In Hebrews 10, he talks about sacrifice under the old covenant, you know, how that, even though there were sacrifices and stuff, it couldn't truly take away sin. It could kind of temporarily atone for sin, which is again, why they had to do it once a year. He encourages the church to stir up love and good works in one another. And he also t encourages to take heart when you feel discouraged because you know, he basically says like, lean on your last, on your other times in your life when you've been strong to uh, encourage you in this difficult time. So you've stood in, you've stood for God in tough times before you can do it again. Um, Hebrews 11 is 
that wall of of fame or the the um, faithful I think it's called the faithful hall of fame I think that's how I've been it's been described to me but basically it goes through and walks through all these people who have been an example of God's faithfulness and how they were faithful to God it said Abel's offering showed more faith than Cain's um, Enoch was taken away because he had faith he never saw death Noah, Abraham, and Sarah are models of faith. Um, let's see. By faith, Abraham blessed Jacob and Esau, and Jacob blessed his sons. Joseph gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him when he was born. So it goes through all of these famous um, figures, historical figures, that have kept the faith and um, really been just faithful in and out of season basically so moses kept the passover he took the israelites out of egypt he crossed the red sea uh rahab was saved um so yes this is a great summary chapter to summarize like all these very faithful people that we can be looking up to in hebrews 12 he talks about having a cloud of witnesses how we need to lay aside sin and run the race with endurance this is a very famous bible verse uh, where people talk about training you know spiritually and mentally you know and physically to run the race you know the eternal race so train yourself spiritually i was listening to christian huff's podcast the other week or i didn't listen to his podcast but i listened to the unashamed podcast which is the robertson family's podcast and uh christian was a guest on there and he has this podcast and this whole kind of ministry that's talking about it's mostly geared towards men it's called four eight men i think or it's based off of i believe timothy four eight and it talks just about this like running the race with endurance and so his whole premise is is saying like not only do you need to be fit and train and all the, that stuff, but you need to be preparing spiritually just as much as you prepare physically. So he was saying that he has been trying, or he um, implements something spiritual into his workout routine. Like he'll listen to a sermon or a Christian podcast or worship music or something like that. And I've been trying to implement that. And even if I don't listen to actual worship music or something, I try to think like, this is this run like i'm running now and like i'm training i need to be training my spiritual self so i don't know that was kind of a i didn't probably explain that well but it was pretty enlightening to me to see that connection between like physical physically working out and di having discipline and training your spiritual uh doing something for yourself spiritually um okay go this also talks about how God chastens us or chastens us so that we can partake in his holiness. And, you know, when, he, when God disciplines us, it's at first painful. It can be hard to handle, but the results are um, good fruit. So it says, do not sell your birthright like Esau did. Pursue peace and do not be bitter. Um, and then... He talks about the consequences of, of the people rebelling at Mount Sinai, how you should not come to Mount Sinai, the theoretical Mount Sinai in this case, which is 
you know, dark and and just it represents everything dark and bad that you should not be, you know, going there, that there are consequences of going there and, um, you know, how you should be pursuing and chasing after these righteous and peaceful things. In Hebrews 13, he talks about loving each other with brotherly love. Um, it says, entertain strangers for they may be angels. Like, I, th I think this is multiple places in the Bible, but where they say, you know, treat people uh, well, treat strangers well, because you never know, they could be an angel in disguise. I've heard that a lot. He said to remember prisoners and those who are mistreated. Uh, these last four chapters I found a good summary about because there's kind of a lot going on in here, so I'll link that summary. Um, he talks about how marriage is honorable, fornication is not honorable, uh, do not be co uh, covetous, but be content, follow the leaders. Then he talks about how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he will never change. And you don't have to claim to the old rites, like the Levitical rites. He says animals for sin offerings were burned outside the camp in the same way. Christ was offered up outside the gate of the city. So I think a lot of people in these churches were still trying to cling to these old, you know, these old laws. And he says, you can put that behind you. That is, you know, Christ was our final sacrifice. Um, so then with that, uh, talking about how through Jesus' death, we were brought into the new covenant and then he sends his final greetings and that is the end of the book of hebrews so very good book very practical advice but also a lot of good teaching like doctrinally um was really kind of interesting to dive into so that was the book of hebrews all right we're now to the book of james so i'm going to read the intro it says james one of the brothers of jesus became a leader of the church in jerusalem after jesus's death and resurrection he was respected for the advice he gave and for the wise decisions he helped the community of believers make. At one point, he decided to write down some of his best teachings and advice and send them to other Jewish believers in Jesus who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He, what he wrote to them has become known as the Book of James. It explains that this book doesn't look like a letter very much because it's sent to, to people at a distance. It's actually not very much like the other letters of the time. It is a collection of short sayings and slightly longer discussions of practical topics. The conversational style, the short pithy sayings, and the interweaving of themes all make this book similar to the wisdom found in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, James concentrates on questions of daily living in God's good creation. He considers such practical issues as concern for the poor, the responsible use of wealth, control of the tongue, purity of life, unity in the community of Christ followers, and above all, patience and endurance during times of trial. The godly wisdom here remains as valuable as, as valuable a guide to living fully human lives as when James first shares it centuries ago. So let's get into James 1. So again, this is like not really formatted like a letter, but the first section is about, is about trials and temptations. He says to consider it joy when you face trials because faith produces perseverance. Um, trials will make you mature and complete. And then he says to ask God for wisdom if you lack it because God will give you wisdom very generously. 
he says that they must believe and not doubt when you ask. So if you're asking God for wisdom, don't doubt that he will give it to you. Just believe that he will give it to you. Believers in, hum this is chapter nine. It says, believers in humble cir circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So scathing words for the rich. And he does talk more, I think, about the handling of wealth. But it is definitely a common theme throughout the Bible of like, you know, it's harder for the rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. That's kind of like the overall theme there. And so it's very important how if you do like come into money or make a lot of money, how you handle that. Uh, he says that when you're being tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. He does not tempt. And, um, you know, every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is constant and does not change like shifting shadows. He also in James 1 talks about listening and doing. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. Rid yourselves of moral filth and evil and humbly accept the word planted in you. He said, Essentially, he just says, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. Um, one verse that really hit me that I, I've talked about this, need to get better at, is those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's very hard to get, have yourself not be polluted by the world, but that is a call to all Christians. In James 2, he says that believers must not show favoritism to rich or poor. Someone who keeps the whole law except one is found guilty of it all. So that just shows, it, it's like the same sentiment as, you know, your good works are like dirty rags. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then he also talks and instructs people. Um, it says, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? James talks about how he'll show you his faith by his deeds. So the faith and deeds link is very important. And that is something that I think modern Christianity for the most part misses. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James 3 talks about taming your tongue uh, and says that basically not a lot of people should become teachers. Teachers are judged more strictly and it is not for everyone. He talks about the tongue and how a small rudder steers a whole ship so the tongue has huge impacts on life. This is, I feel like people are starting to kind of catch on to this like in the secular world with the whole manifesting phenomenon right now. Every, like... I can't go online without someone talking about manifesting. It's kind of annoying. Um, but I've always, you know, thought that being positive, speaking positively into your life is good because it opens you up to God's blessings and you're looking for them and you're looking for opportunities for 
God for you to bless other people. Like if God moves to, uh, what am I trying to say? If God moves in your heart to bless someone else, you're not going to recognize that unless you are, you know, in worship and also just being, you know, speaking blessings. You can either speak death or life. And so, um, speaking life is obviously the better option, but the secular world has kind of, has taken that and perverted it and, and put it into this whole manifesting thing. And it's just this no non-faith-based thing about like, if I say this, then it will come back to me. The universe will give me what I've manifested. So all these things and all these trends that I see in, you know, pop culture, it's always like a biblical principle that's been perverted. Um, so anyway, that's just a side rant about manifestation. Uh, he said, there's two kinds of wisdom. It says, who is wise and understanding? Let them show, let them show it by their good life. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, <clears throat> who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So then we talk about submission a little bit, not, you know, <laughs> people get triggered by the word submission nowadays, but he talks about submitting yourselves to God. Um, he says, quarrels and fights come from desires within, not getting what you want. It says wanting, but not getting. Friendship with the world means enmity against God. He says to submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and purify your hearts. He then says to humble yourselves to the Lord and he will lift you up and to not slander one another. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Then he moves into this section that is very, you know, hits home a lot. Um, just in general, because I think we're so quick to plan and have all these, um, yeah, like future plans. But he really just says, you know, you need to live right now and trust in the Lord because he says boasting in arrogant schemes about tomorrow or future plans is evil. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It says, say instead, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If you know you should do something and you don't, it is a sin. So I learned in like a theology class, there's, you know, the sin, I forget the fancy terms, but there's the sin where you, you go and do something wrong which is, let's say, lying. I'm actively going out and telling a lie. There's also a sin where you know that you should do something that is good and you don't, and you disobey by not doing that good thing. That's also a sin. Um, but that thing with about the plans, I really need to get better at that. I plan all the time. I say, oh, we're going to go do this. We're going to go do that. The Bible specifically says you should be saying things like, if it's the Lord's will, we will live, we will do this and do that. So that is a good note. Okay, and then, oh, my notes just scrolled all the way to the bottom somehow. So let me try to get back to James 5. Okay, so James 5 talks about a warning to rich oppressors. He says, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your field are crying out against you. Basically, don't cheat people and to give generously is the main message of that section. 
he instructs people to be patient until the Lord's coming for like, like farmers for harvest. Don't grumble against each other and take the prophets as an example of patience. He said, don't swear by heaven or earth. Just say yes or no. And otherwise you'll be condemned. So don't take, you know, oaths or silly oaths. Um, he said, talks about the prayer of faith, which I summarized essentially as saying, you know, in everything you do, talk to the Lord. You know, it says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders to the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So that is just a good way to sum up James. So we have now made it through the entire section that we are doing today. You know, I originally was going to do Philemon all the way up through Jude today, but I realized by the end of James, I had only gone through half of my notes and I did not want this podcast to be like two hours long. So tune in next week for the next section of the New Testament. And then in two weeks, we are doing Revelation, which has intimidated me for a little bit. Lots of commentaries to look up. So I will start doing my prep very soon. And I hope you all have a great week. Make sure if you have not already to go rate and review the podcast, follow me, subscribe, you know, on Instagram and on whatever uh, platform you're listening to the podcast to. And I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Bye everyone.